Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Hello, my name is Peggy Doviak, and welcome to the Ask Peggy Show. So this week, we're going to look at definitions and concepts and information that will help you plan your prosperity. I want to start out by talking about last week's market action in our Bulls and Bears market report. So the stock market went up about 3.5% as a reaction to its drop at the end of the week before based off of the potential tariffs that were going to be happening. So the market was up 3.5%. Gold was relatively flat, which also ties to a little bit more stability. Oil was down roughly 50 cents a barrel. Now, whether or not these tariffs take place and the impact that they have still remains to be seen, but at least last week the market thought there was a little bit of hope. So I'd like to talk today about the cause behind the tariff. By now you know that the president has announced a 25% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff on aluminum, but the question is, why is he doing this? And it's based off of our balance of trade with foreign countries. Now, balance of trade, our financial word of the day, is the difference between a nation's exports and imports over a certain period of time. So if a nation has a trade surplus, that means it has a positive balance, which means that it's exporting more than it's importing. But if a nation imports more than it exports, that's a trade deficit. And the president's concern is that the trade deficit that we have is problematic to our economy. And actually, the trade deficit does drop the GDP because it's one of the factors that's used to calculate it. But the story is much more complicated than that, so I want to explain a little bit about it. When you're looking at the things that we import and export, we're looking at cost of production and all of those things that go into producing the items that we make, the cost and availability of raw materials and the intermediary steps that they need to go through. We look at the exchange rate movement, so what's happening inside of the currency. We look at taxes or restrictions on trade. This would be where a tariff would have a direct impact. And then there's also environmental safety and health standards that can sometimes limit what a country can bring into its nation to make sure that its citizens stay safe. And then the price of the goods that are being made at home. So if something costs a lot when you buy it locally, but it costs less when you buy it from the import, that will tend to give more favor to the imports than it will to the exports. So is it a really bad thing that we run a trade deficit? Well, most economists say it isn't. When you look at how we're measuring our economy, a trade deficit simply means that we are buying more of a product for, from a foreign country than what we are producing ourselves. And in one of the articles that I read preparing for today, it said that would be like going into the grocery store and looking at the trade deficit between you and the grocer. 
You buy groceries at the grocery store, and the grocer never buys anything from you. But that doesn't have anything to do with your economic health. So the very measure is a little strange because. Just because we're importing from another country doesn't mean that there's anything actually going wrong within our own economy. And there is another piece to this. Everyone thinks in terms of having a deficit with China. Okay, so we have all of our inexpensive products that we buy at the big box stores, where we can get T-shirts for five dollars, socks for you know a six-pack for four dollars, and when you look on the back, they all say "Made in China." So a lot of what we are importing from China are those goods that allow a less expensive product to get passed on to the people. That's useful for people's bottom line when they're going in and shopping. A lot of those daily goods and services that people need to acquire are actually coming in from overseas. If they are to be produced domestically, the cost of those goods is probably going to go up. Additionally, we have a lot of foreign students who study within the United States. And their studying in the states actually goes into this balance of trade. And when you look at those numbers added in with the steel and aluminum that we're really talking about today, along with all of those other goods that we like to buy, then when you add the students in, we're actually running a trade surplus. With China, not a trade deficit with China, because the students coming to the United States counts as an export from the United States to China. So, really, since this is radio, and you might be listening to this in your car, it gets super complicated. But the short version is. The trade deficit versus the trade surplus is not a great measure of the economic health of a country when you begin to look in and look at other factors that are impacting it. The other piece of this is by putting on a tariff to adjust the trade balance. We have other countries that will put tariffs on the products that we export because tariffs don't occur in a vacuum. It's not like we can say we're、well, we're going to put a tariff on and then no one else does anything. So on balance, tariffs typically don't work. They end up causing other goods that we would typically export to be harder to sell because of the tariffs that have been put on them, and it doesn't take into account the rest of the economy. So as we're looking this and at the balance of trade, just be aware that it's complicated. There's a lot of factors that are occurring just below the surface, and if we were going to put the tariffs on, it would need to be a very complex, very thoughtful process. And it would need to be done carefully. Even then, it would probably hurt our economy more than it would help. But that's my opinion. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma KVOY 104.5 FM for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back. In this week's legislative update, I want to talk about a bill that is passed through the House. There's another bill that's passed through the Senate just this last week, and it's probably after some tweaks about to become law. 
And what it does is repeal some of the Dodd-Frank requirements on banks. Now, remember, Dodd-Frank was the legislation that was passed after the last financial crisis, and it was designed to prevent banks and financial institutions from taking as much risk and making bad decisions that added on top of the other issues that were happening in 2008 and led to our Great Recession, which for the people who lived through us, it was a pretty bad recession. So this new bill, as part of its provisions, lowers the capital and liquidity standard for the banks. It was originally designed on paper to only impact smaller banks. But they've defined these smaller banks as um, financial institutions with assets between $50 billion and $250 billion. The idea was that these liquidity requirements were very hard on the small banks. And it's possible that maybe some legislation could have been passed that would help the small banks, but the way it's written, it would include companies like American Express. And additionally, even larger financial institutions like J.P. Morgan and Citibank are going to be able to take advantage of components within it. Now, This bill did get some bipartisan support in the Senate. There are those senators who believe that it's a very bad idea to make it easier for banks to take poor risks. But it looks like something is going to become law. It's important to understand this. The reason it matters to you as the consumer, in my opinion, is when you're investing in things like money markets and other securities that you believe to be safer, then you need to look at what comprises those products. Because as these standards are lowered, as the liquidity requirements are changed, And as new kinds of investments are allowed to be held in different capacities, it's more important for you as the consumer to know what's going on. Specifically, the Senate bill has allowed the Fed to classify investment-grade municipal debt as a high-quality liquid asset. So now municipal debt is something like a municipal bond. And many times municipal bonds are great investments, but sometimes municipal bonds fail. When you look at some of the issues that Puerto Rico has had and Detroit has had and Stockton, California, well, as an individual purchase, you as the buyer can control what you buy. The problem is when this debt is put into a basket of things that you would hold as another kind of investment, like maybe a money market fund, it's more important to realize what's right below the hood. Because we know that some of these municipalities have had issues. It isn't likely to happen, but certainly forcing a bank to keep less cash on hand, forcing a financial institution to have less money in reserve on top of adding new kinds of debt that are acceptable could lead to a problem. This is important to watch. There's probably absolutely nothing we can do about it except to be vigilant and pay attention. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. 
Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. If you remember last week's show, Massachusetts was looking at ways of enforcing the fiduciary rule. Well, this week, Massachusetts is at it again. And they're looking at a large brokerage firm, and they're specifically looking at how that firm is putting clients into different kinds of accounts and whether or not those accounts are really in the client's best interest or were they just done to make money for the firm. So the real takeaway from this, because the actual issue isn't as much of a big deal as the underlying principle. When you're working with a financial advisor and that financial advisor is proposing a major change in how you do business, maybe it's going from brokerage and commissions to fees, which on its surface, you know, fee only is a big deal in this industry. But sometimes with a client where they are not getting any other interaction, and if a trade is placed and held for 10 years and there's no other services being provided by the person who puts them in that, sometimes the commission can be cheaper. But what this firm was doing is they were taking those clients that weren't meeting with advisors, that weren't getting advice, that weren't having changes made to the portfolio, and putting them into a fee situation so that the actual money paid by the client was higher. So I am a fan of fees, but I also believe that it's important for your financial advisor to touch base with you, for you to understand where things are. Now, trading for its own sake does not make any sense. So, you know, having a lot of trading in, a, in, an, in an account is not necessarily the sign that the advisor is doing a great job because buy and hold has a historic reputation of being good. But when there's nothing going on, when there's no meetings and no summary or maybe financial planning, and it's just simply done for its own sake, there is a concept called reverse churning. Now, I believe that the reverse churning drum is being beaten by brokers who realize that the commission model is going away and being replaced by fees, so this is what they can get the fee-only advisors on. Reverse churning is when you pay a fee and absolutely nothing is going on on your behalf. So this is where you have to be a good steward and responsible for taking control of your financial life. You need to be sure that you get to meet with the advisor or talk to them on the phone. Make sure that there is a concern for changing situations in your life. If the advisor is buy and hold, that might be a great strategy, but you need to understand why the strategy is being implemented. So really, it comes down to communication. You need to be careful that whoever you're working with is communicating with you, you have an understanding, you know there's a game plan, and it will make you much safer as a consumer for doing it. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome to the Plan Your Prosperity segment. And this week, I want to talk to you about types of life insurance. And I want to begin with a general disclaimer that I think applies to most financial planning situations. 
If the answer seems overly simple, it probably isn't correct because financial planning is complicated, and we like catchy phrases and we like rules of thumb because they're easy to understand. We don't have to think about them as much. The problem with rules of thumb is those times that the rules don't apply. And that's what I'm going to talk about today a little bit with you. And it may surprise you to know that I don't think that buy term and invest the difference is always a great idea. So I want to start out talking about the purpose of life insurance. Why do you own life insurance to begin with? And according to the CFP Board of Standards, and I really like this definition, life insurance is purchased only to cover the cost of your unexpected death to be sure that the family or friends that you leave behind have the resources they need to be financially stable. So we buy life insurance to manage the risk of our death. And that's the only reason we buy life insurance. I've heard people say, oh, it's a great savings vehicle when you buy a whole life policy. If you want a savings vehicle, my opinion is go to a bank. When you're buying insurance, you are meeting the, the need of the risk of your death. So there's lots of different kinds of insurances that can help you meet these needs. And we're going to look at this from about a 50,000 foot view. So it's very possible that there will be a tweak to one of these policies that would really be what you would need, but we don't want to get into all of those details on the air. I want to start out by talking about term insurance. Term insurance is usually the cheapest way you can purchase insurance. And if you qualify for it, you get a certain amount of insurance. Usually it's a fairly substantial amount for a relatively low cost. The thing is it's for a term, a period of time. So a 20 year level term policy provides insurance coverage for 20 years. The problem is in year 21, you no longer have any insurance coverage. Now, because term is inexpensive, it's popular with young people who don't have as much money to pay into buying a whole life policy because whole life is more expensive because it's permanent insurance. It includes money that creates a savings component to it. And it's just a more complicated product. It's more expensive. So term policies are typically less expensive, maybe a little bit easier underwriting that would depend on a lot of circumstances. So a term policy is great when you are trying to insure a specific loss item. For example, maybe you're young and you've just purchased a house and you're worried that your surviving spouse wouldn't be able to pay for the house on his or her salary. And so you buy a 20-year term, you try to tie it to the length of your mortgage, and then you know that the house is paid for if something happens to you. Other people buy term policies for other periods of time for other big costs, but typically term is great to insure a thing. 
Now, term is also used by your employer many times, where it becomes a rolling one-year term policy. So you buy insurance from your employer, and it's for a certain amount, and you can often buy additional insurance to this, and that policy then basically renews every year at your benefit period. So term policies are good. Whole life policies are more expensive. You pay more. The policy is in place until you die. So it becomes a permanent insurance solution. With whole life insurance, if you're worried about covering estate needs. Now, this really should be after you've done really great estate planning, so you've taken advantage of anything you could get through that. But then sometimes if there's a remaining need, a whole life policy in place can cover that cost of estate tax, or it can cover the costs that are associated with your death. Sometimes people just want a standard of living for their entire lives, and if something happens to their spouse, they don't want to make an adjustment, and a whole life policy might make sense. Now, I know for people who are saying, but wait, we're going to invest the difference, and that amount's going to grow. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. It really depends upon how much insurance you need at the period of time the term is up and what that premium that you're reinvesting can grow to. So if you can buy term, invest the difference, and then the amount at the end of the period of time is equal to the risk of your death, then that strategy might work for you. Many times, it's not quite enough money. So really, it's a math problem, and you need to talk to a certified financial planner practitioner and make sure that that strategy works. There's another more human crisis that happens, which is that people don't invest the difference. They swear they're going to when they buy the policy, but then they get into it, well, they need the money for this this month, and then they need the money for that another month, six months after not investing the difference, and you completely forget you were supposed to be doing that. So the real risk is that you buy term, you don't invest the difference, and then you have a crisis later. Now, there's many other kinds of insurance policies out there. Be very sure that you understand all of them. If they have riders on them, make sure you understand why those riders are there, what are they covering. But just be sure that whatever insurance strategy you select is appropriate to meet the need in case you die. That's why you're buying it. Thank you to Voices of Oklahoma, KVOY 104.5 FM, for the opportunity to share my ideas. Thank you also to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment. So my first question today is, Peggy, what's a mutual fund? So a mutual fund is an investment vehicle that invests in many other securities so that when you buy a mutual fund, you are actually buying a portfolio of investments. Now, if you were to go out and say buy Apple stock or any other stock, that is not an Apple endorsement, you would actually be going in and buying a share of that stock. But when you buy a mutual fund, you are buying a share of the portfolio that the mutual fund has purchased. 
So you're actually buying into the company and the portfolio that they've put together. Now, those portfolios can be indexes, so they can be very passively managed and only change when the actual underlying index changes, or they can be actively managed with a fund manager who tries to go in and select securities that that person believes will outperform whatever sector your fund is supposed to track. So the advantage of the mutual fund for the average investor is diversity. Most of us don't have the money to be able to buy a stock portfolio made up of single stocks that covers enough so that we're diversified in case something goes wrong. This is particularly true on the bond side of your portfolio because each individual bond costs $1,000. And you wouldn't typically buy one bond of a type because it would be cost prohibitive and really difficult to make the trade. So a diversified bond portfolio is unbelievably expensive and a diversified stock portfolio is outside of the range of most people. So it's very useful to have that. It's also easy to access it. You just log in or you get your statement. If you're buying a mutual fund online, you can usually do the trading. The thing about a mutual fund is it will have a fee associated with it, which is only fair because whoever has put the fund together has to get paid for putting the fund together. The trick is knowing how much money that is and deciding if the, the fund performance makes the fee worthwhile. So if you're getting great returns and the fee is a little higher, it is at the end of the day up to you to decide whether or not that makes sense. You would want to compare your fund against the index. You would want to see how the index had performed during the same period of time because a rising tide raises all boats. You would also want to look to see whether or not the fund was tracking the correct index. So for example, a small cap fund would want to track its performance against a small cap index not a large cap index. And a bond fund would never track its performance against a stock index. You would have to find a bond index to be sure that you're either not thinking you've drastically underperformed or possibly outperformed, but what you actually did was outperform a different section of the market than what you were invested in. The disadvantage can be making sure that the fund does what it's supposed to do. So look for something called style drift. Make sure that the fund is continuing to invest in the way you think it is. Also look to see how much money the fund manager is holding in cash. Now in bad market times, it might not be a bad idea to have some cash in a mutual fund, but you want to be careful that the amount of cash that you're holding is not then conflicting if you have opted to hold cash or money market as another part of your asset allocation. Sometimes, especially when the market gets a little strange and the fund managers have gone partially to cash and you're partially in cash, you may be holding more cash than you think you are. However, for most people, mutual funds are a great way to get diversity, 
You can get large cap, mid cap, small cap. You can get international funds that track developed markets and emerging markets. You can get sector funds. You have a lot of options that you can use to get the diversification into your portfolio to make sure that if one part of the market goes down, you have holdings with different risk-reward characteristics that might not be as badly implicated by it. So be very careful that you hold what you think you're holding. Know what you're paying. Make sure that the benchmark is accurate to what you have, and it will do a great job helping you hold a diversified portfolio. Well, I can't believe we've almost run out of time, and I didn't get to my last question. We were going to talk about how much money you should save for retirement, and I was going to talk about the kinds of things you need to think about. We're going to have to save that for next week's show because I can't give it justice in the time that's left. Remember, if you want to ask me a question, go to the Ask Peggy Facebook page. I'll answer it on the air, and I will see you next week. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.